Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. Join me, your host, Tristan Stevenson, as I chat to some of the biggest and best names in the industry on a whole range of bar-related topics. From the finer details of spirits and cocktails to the latest global trends. We hope you're inspired by the variety of episodes available. Okay, welcome to a special beer episode of the Bar Chat podcast. I am joined here today in the studio by Podray Fox from the Guinness Open Gate Brewery in Dublin and Ed Hughes, all-round beer expert. Hi, gents. How are you doing? All Hi. good. How are you? Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for the intro, mate. I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm a geek. That's all it is. Yeah. What's the difference between an expert and a geek? I don't think anything's the difference. Business, business cards. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, I've, first, we should get this out of the way. Ed, we've known each other for years and years and years, and it's absolutely fantastic to have you here because we've kind of worked together in the past. We've done bits and pieces, and you are now rocking the beer world. You're appearing on TV shows, talking about beer. You're generally just becoming like this sort of beer ambassador, right? Oh, yeah. Flattery will get you everywhere, mate. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm just, like I said, bit of a geek, and I, this is the only time I will stroke your ego through this podcast. I wouldn't be here without you, Trig. Oh, thank you. It's nice to have it recorded, because then I can just play it back <laughs> over and over again. Podrick, we just met like 10 minutes ago, um, but it's absolutely fantastic to have you here. An expert from Guinness, you're going to talk us through loads of stuff from Guinness. You got, I've, I can see already a bottle of something magical with Guinness branding that we're going to taste, um, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, how are you? You good? Are I'm you, good. Yeah, it's you, been a, been a brilliant ten minutes before we walked into oh, the studio. <laughs> I won't lie; it's been one of the best ten minutes of my entire life. So, you are the manager of the Guinness Open Gate Brewery, correct? Yes, correct. How did you How did you land that job? What did you do to get that job? How did you first get into beer? I, I kind of fell into it by accident. Um, I did French and German in college. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, but those were my two best subjects in school. And the Guinness Storehouse were looking for German speakers for a, a two month summer contract to be his tour guide. So I joined up as a two month contract. Two months turned into six months. Six months turned into a 14-year career with uh, with Guinness. So I spent uh, four years in the Guinness storehouse doing uh, tours, bar work, and then I ended up working on the road for a couple of years in Ireland. So I worked for the uh, draft quality team, the on- and off-premise sales teams. Then I moved to the US, worked in Boston, Massachusetts for a couple of years as kind of a, a hybrid of every role I had previously, brand ambassador, sales rep, quality rep, everything. Moved home then, took a year out, worked for two really good Irish craft breweries, and then kind of fell into, I think, where I'm most naturally suited, which is behind a bar, serving pints to people in the middle of an experimental brewery. Did you always think that you would end up in... I mean, you must get the same thing as, like, most other people in our industry. When you talk to someone and they go, what, your job is working with beer every day? How did you... like? Did you always think that it would end up that way? Or was it kind of a happy accident or, you know... Oh, very much a happy accident, but I'm kind of like a celebrity among all my neighbours at home because it's, it's the beer guy, you know. There's yeah, always, like, a couple of cans floating around in the boot of the car that you can <laughs> hand out to neighbours. Um, we had a huge snowfall a couple of years ago where everybody, like, just dug in and uh, swept out all of the driveways, got everybody up and running. And, of course back to the shed in my back garden for a couple of years afterwards. So I bet everyone was like digging out your driveway frantically. Oh, the first driveway yeah, to be cleared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always yeah. the first. Most important man in the village, mate. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ed, how did you get into beer? Um, again, there's no plans, really. I think um, I was saying earlier on, when it comes to being a failed musician, basically I realised I wasn't that good as a musician. Um, like most musicians, work in bars and restaurants. And then... You know, front of house is quite an interesting one. You know, don't want to go too deep too early, but like the hospitality industry, there are loads of rock stars that are generally chefs. Um, and we talked previously about front of house, whether it's cocktails or beer or wine or just being a really good waiter is the most underrated and sometimes undervalued 
profession as well. And I, I was I was a pretty average barman, to be honest, Trig. So you'd have to say that. But um, I enjoyed the job. I enjoyed sort of yeah talking to strangers, and then um, moved back home to Cornwall. And you got me on the flavour panel at Sharps, mm-hmm. and that sort of changed everything. Then sort of became a bit of a beer geek. I think the beer epiphany happened on a trip to Brussels when I was working in Nottingham. Um, and actually, it wasn't about you know the different beers out there. It was the respect and reverence the Belgians have for beer that I don't think enough of us have. Um, and so, yeah, I, I over-romanticise about beer, but I, I think you know we need people like us to to talk and put beer on that pedestal that we put wine and spirits on. Mm, absolutely. Funny thing about Belgium, isn't it? Because they've had tons of beer for ages, right? And now we have tons of different beers to choose from. But for them, this is like just the way. Yes. It? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, right. So that's your history. Let's talk about beer's history for a little minute, if, if you don't mind. Um, I don't know. Ed, do you want to kick us off? Like, what's where did beer come from? How on earth did this whole thing start? Well, they're still finding evidence. I think... That it, because ironically, you know, and do correct me if I'm wrong, but beer is the oldest alcoholic beverage in history. So we're looking nine, maybe 10,000 years old. Like there's even rumours of beer before bread or a byproduct of be- bread. Hunter-gatherers stopped hunter-gathering to make beer. Um, but they're still finding more and more evidence, whether it's in China, um, Mesopotamia, and we're still on this voyage of discovery, whereas so much study's been done in, in spirits, and again, different spirits and wine, that we're all on this voyage of discovery. So I don't think there's a, a pinpoint mm-hmm. sort of origin story. No, well, no, I don't, no one knows the inventor of beer, unless, Podrag, unless you want to come in now and tell me something that is incredible, and you know the individual that invented you don't do you? No, I don't. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Starting to sweat there a little bit. <laughs> so, because, yeah, it, it sort of goes hand in hand with civilization, doesn't it? Yeah. You think about it, like 10,000 years ago, hunter gatherers stop hunting and gathering. They start growing crops because they think it's gonna, life's going to get a bit easier when they've got access to stuff all year round. They start settling down, they start having bigger families, they start tending the land. Then they've got all these cereals where before it was like a cacophony of different fruits and cereals and animals perhaps they're eating. They've got all this these sort of early strains of barley and wheat and what have you. And, they, and they, they're like, right, well, we need to eat these. So they start mashing them up with water. They start cooking them, perhaps. And you've got kind of basic porridge or, or bread or the building blocks of beer. Yeah. And as we know, when you leave stuff with sugar lying around, inevitably yeast, because yeast is everywhere, right? Yeah. Start, comes in, lands on this porridgey, soupy stuff, and then starts converting the sugar into alcohol. When you've got alcohol, you know, you've got something that I guess kind of, um, you know, it makes life that little bit easier when you're toiling the land uh, 10,000 years ago and there's, you know, no Netflix or anything yeah. else to keep you entertained. There's Egyptian tablets, there's 110 recipes for beer, for tonics. Like most alcohol started off as tonics and mm. same with, with gin or Geneva or whatever it would be. Um, and it's, it's been documented and there's still more documents being found but back to that, there isn't that one origin story because it's global as well. There wasn't a one country. Every country, and I'm sure we'll get onto it later, you know, there isn't a one country that's more important. There's some countries that have been more influential because of sort of global migration. But like beer was everywhere mm. 6,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago. Mm. Egyptians, China, South America, over in Europe. It's, yeah arguably the birth of spirits and you'll definitely correct me on this one well but freeze distillation it's no-brainer really, yeah yeah really, yeah, isn't it? yeah sure i just i was just thinking about um 
you know, you know the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is arguably the oldest story ever written. I don't know if you guys know this one. It's Epic of... So it's a story of like en- the main character is Enkidu, who's like a kind of um, wolf type creature, like the missing link, let's say, not really human yet. Anyway, the way he becomes human in the story is he drinks beer. And it, it, I don't, I can't quote it directly, but it sort of makes him happy. He jumps around, he dances, and he sheds all this fur and basically becomes civilized. And so the story is kind of like a um, analogous to the civilization of man, if you like, this idea of us coming out of being a hunter-gatherer species and becoming, you know, setting up communities, farming, language, literature currency, politics, and all the other things. So categorically, <laughs> you're saying that beer was the birth of civilization. I am and more saying, important than any other beverage I'm saying, in history. I'm saying, well, it's the building blocks of many other drinks, including whiskey and vodka and all these kind of things. So. I think one of the really fun and interesting things about it is that we talk about beer has always been there since the civilization of man, but traditionally it was a, a female role, was, was the brewer. Mm, yeah. Um, we got married a couple of years ago and we brewed a beer for our wedding and uh, on the back label, like very specifically called out, it was a Bridale, because that's where the word bridal actually comes from. It was brewed by the mother of the bride prior to the wedding. Nice. So every time, every time you read a history book or anything like that, it's like, oh, civilization, birth of man, birth of man, birth of man. The man wasn't the one who was actually making the beer. You're listening to Diageo Bar Academy's podcast, Bar Chat. Still to come. If you go to a supermarket and buy a liter of milk, you don't leave it sitting on your kitchen counter for a week yeah. and expect it to still taste the same at the end of it. Everything is part of that whole quality chain to make sure it gets to the customer's lips as best condition as possible that's sort of ancient history and then as you kind of alluded to basically every single civilization ancient civilization and going forward more recent civilizations since then have been making beer or in some shape or form fermenting but how did we get from this sort of basic cereal based ferment that was pretty crude right often unfiltered they used to mm-hmm. drink it with straws, straws didn't they? Egyptians yeah. again yeah, yeah. Um, to the kind of styles that we have today. Because we have various different producing countries that are famous for beer. We have things like stouts, we have porters, we have bitters, best bitter, IPA. Not only that, but now IPA seems to have other letters put in front of it, like SPI. Nipa. 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 Uh, you know, you pick the letter, it'll probably work. So how, how? I mean, it's a, it's a big question, but how have we established these different styles and which, where, where's the kind of like, what, what are the starting points of this? Which countries first influenced it? I think it's more than just the countries. It's more kind of ingredients and access to ingredients probably um, helped it a little bit more than just location. So you think about Czech Republic, Germany, lovely, nice water, perfect for brewing pilsners, Hellas beers, things like that. You look more towards Burton Albion in the UK, a lot more sulfur, which is perfect for ales. And in the, the water in Dublin is just perfect for that darker style of beer. So nowadays, I mean, you can filter your water, you can add uh, uh, different elements to it to make it available to brew any style of beer. But traditionally, going back, it's right, what malted barley is local, what hops are local. Mm. Uh, and even up until the 16th, 17th century, there was no hops at all. It was literally mm. just thrown in for a bit of flavour. It could have been heather, it could have been gorse. It was whatever botanical you could get your hands on. Exactly. So when you go back through history, it, it's really more what was available to the brewer at the time versus a dedicated, right, we're going to be a lager brewery in 17 whatever. Yeah. Mm, well, I suppose it's terroir. It, the, it, back to that pedestal we put wine on, it's using the best possible ingredients to get the best possible outcome and nurturing those ingredients, those various ingredients. Um, I'd say probably the turning point for modern history that sort of changed everything was 1842 in the town of Pilsen, where they discovered 
a bottom fermenting yeast, Saccharomyces pastorianus. And so everything up until that point was either wild, so lambic, like you were saying, with wild yeasts and spontaneous fermentation, or a top fermenting yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And then that bottom fermenting lager yeast, even though the word lager is a German word, mm. that bottom fermenting yeast changed everything. Okay, I want to get onto the difference between lager and ale a little bit later once we start talking about cool. how beer is made. So we'll come back to that, definitely. Um, so what we're saying is that the style of beer was not so much based around, you know, culture, but more around the available natural resource, whether that's wheat or barley, whatever happens to grow well in that area. And then that's sort of in concert with the water source as well. So certain waters. You mentioned before about um, uh, Dublin being, the water traditionally being particularly well suited to brewing darker beers. So what what is it about the mineral content or hardness of the water that is conducive to that? Yeah, so it's a little bit more of a, a hard water style. So that gives you, um, at times, kind of little harsher flavours. Uh, so if you were to brew a lager with that kind of harder water style, what you're going to do is get a little bit more sulfuric, kind of uh, harsher flavours towards the back end of the flavour. But for something like a stout or a porter, where it's much more uh, roasted barley, heavier, kind of coffee, chocolatey, earthy flavours, they'll actually hide a lot of the flavours of the water underneath. Because if you go back to um, over 100 years ago in, in Dublin, Dublin was actually kind of categorised as a, a third world city there was a lot of tenements a lot of poverty we didn't have like indoor plumbing until the, the 40s and 50s so uh, previously to that the water supply was what people relied on so you couldn't always guarantee the specific quality of it so it took a lot of uh, effort and skill from the brewers to be able to sometimes mask the quality of the water in the different beers mm, okay yeah. it's interesting though isn't it because you have it, this is one, one of the things I love about um, beer wine and spirit is you have a natural resource that's abundant because of the the terroir, the geography, the soil type, or whatever it might be. Then you have a culture of people um, that 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 live there, and they they recognise that, and they begin making a product using those materials. The flavour of the product is shaped by those materials, and then becomes the flavour of that culture. Mm. And so, when you go to Germany and drink a pilsner, um, you're really drinking a beer that is of not just of that culture, but of that particular place, yeah. of that environment, of the, the, you know, whatever, the humidity, the temperature, the soil type, the, the lay of the land, the amount of sunshine, um, even things down to like fermentation temperature, which would, you know, not have been controlled in the past, I guess, you know, that would affect the esters, the congeners that you're making during the ferment and therefore affect the flavour of the final product. So you're not, you're not really talking about a product that's made by human beings as, as such. They're just kind of middlemen in between what is naturally available and the, the outcome, that end product. And this is, this is the lovely thing about our platform now is sort of enthusiasts. These are stories that don't come out. The average beer drinker, and I, I try not to get too, too militant about it, the average beer drinker hasn't been told these stories and sometimes it's the average bar person hasn't been told these stories, you know, and it's not to be damning of the brewing industry, but I think it's in its infancy to a certain extent compared to wine and spirits, because back to that, you know, the sort of um, fictitious pedestal that I, that, that I speak of. I worked in bars for, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years. No one ever taught me anything about beer. The general the general salesperson would come in saying, you don't want that on the bar. I'll do you a deal on this. It's like, well, you save your GP, you, you know, you, as an operator, your boss is saying you make wicked GP on that, get that in. But you're not taught about flavour, whereas we're in this lovely 
you know, sometimes confusing world now where people want the knowledge and we have got so many stories to tell because, like you said, it's not just about the brewer or the town. Like, Burton-on-Trent is a prime example because it, you know, is and was the home of brewing because of what was in the water, um, which was gypsum. And, you know, the IPA was born there. And so we don't talk about these towns with romanticism or reverence, but not only that, it employed a whole town you know, thousands and thousands of people um, that in, in, in the German towns is exactly the same thing. But again, steeped in history. And that's where the mid 1800s is probably most important because that's where sort of everything changed with lagering or the lager yeast in Bohemia um, and then in Bavaria and G Germany, I suppose in Munich. And you've got the hop, hop fields in Germany as well. So that's where everything sort of combined. And then the Bavarians travelled. Mm. And that's why lagers are drank all over the world because of German people travelling, you mm. know, brewmasters and that industrious nature and wanting to succeed. You know, and it's, it's steeped in society, as you said, um, in, in a massive way. And these are all stories that have been building up and building up and building up. And I think now is the time to, to talk about them. Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant point about when working in bars years ago as well. I remember when I worked in sales, we launched a, a pale ale and trying to sell it into pubs who were used to dealing with dark beer lager and, and a red ale that's mm -hmm. it that, that was the choice there might be seven different brands eight different brands but it was only three specific colours and we came in with this uh, here's our here's our pale ale brewed small batch blah 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 I'm like well, why didn't you call it a lager I'm like well it's not a lager it's it's an ale I'm Like, but it's the same colour as a lager and just mm -hmm. being able to have that conversation and, and like drawing the different yeast family trees on the back of a beer mat and you can once you get in at that and all of a sudden the, the bartender is now interested and then he's going to tell the story to the customers and it just rolls on and on and on from there yes exactly that yeah. All right, you two are both desperate to tell me what the difference is between a lager and an ale. I can see that. You've both brought it up now. So let's talk a little bit about how beer is made. Uh, before we go into the lager and ale thing, please, I'm just going to hold you back one more minute, okay? It's cool, man. Let, let's talk about raw materials. So most beer is made from malted barley, right? Yeah. What other, what other cereals can be used? Uh, maize, corn, rye. Yeah, any fermentable sugars yeah. again, really. Okay. And uh, but most of the styles that we recognise will be 100% malted barley. I mean, there's wheat beer, which is obviously made from wheat, right? Yeah, uh, well, uh, there's an element of wheat in there, but malted barley is is the base of the majority of beers on on the planet. So, in a wheat beer, what would it typically be? Like 50% wheat, 50% malt, or I'm not sure. I think, I think it very much depends on the brewery. So, you know, the, the hazier a wheat beer, there's more uh, wheat in there. Mm. Um, uh, the less haze that you see in it, it's going to be more malt based. Mm. Um, wheat beers, particularly as well from Germany, like rely on the, the yeast to give it a little bit more of the flavour than the actual grain as well. Mm. You get that citrusy kind of lightness to, to a wheat beer, which is kind of uh, fitting, I guess, because when we talk about wheat-based spirits, it, that same citric kind of note comes through, whether it's a wheat whiskey or wheat-based vodka or whatever. Cool. Okay, so we, 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 that's cereals, uh, mostly malted barley. We're not going to go and talk too much about the malting. Pro what do you want to talk about malting? Let's talk about malting. Well, that's an art form in itself. You know, maltsters, they're the same providers for our breweries as, you know, your love of whiskey. You know, if we think of specialist maltsters like Simpsons, they're the same people that will be providing malt for Talisker, mm -hmm. for Johnny Walker, mm -hmm. you know, Johnny Walker being in blend. And then, you know, it's the same. That's who we buy our the best possible ingredients. Mm. So brewers very rarely have maltsters as well now because it is an art form in itself. Yeah, what about Guinness? Because Guinness is it's, it's not normal malt, right? Well, with 
most of it is is malted barley, but there's uh, the element of the roast barley. That's actually raw barley that we roast on site. So pretty much ten percent of every pint is uh, raw roasted barley, which so is unmalted. Unmalted, right, yeah, okay. because uh, when you go to do that with um, malted barley, it, it just becomes too crisp and too fine. So raw barley is perfect to throw into a roaster. It's effectively the same process as roasting a coffee bean. Mm-hmm. So you completely change the the nature of the grain. So we roast it to two hundred and thirty two degrees, having discovered that two degrees hotter catches fire. Two degrees lower is not roasted enough. And even though like ultra modern brewery, it's still done by hand to test that the, the roasted barley is ready. And we've actually had the same malt supplier for over hundred years. And where I'm from originally is the middle of the, the barley growing region of Ireland and there's actually a competition every year for the best barley growing farmer awesome. uh, uh, it's like the Oscars of barley farming they, they win a huge prize get a trip to Paris for the weekend and they, they take it really really seriously because how's it, how's it scored? There's a, there's a lot of criteria you have to hit. Um, so we, we buy all of our um, barley from Minch Malt, who are an Irish company, and they work with the farmers. From the moment the grain goes into the ground, they have an agronomist on site. We've also got an agronomist that goes out at the start of the barley growing season as well. So from the word go, the quality control is there from the start. And it's really in the farmer's best benefit to make sure they've got the absolute best possible grain going into the maltsters because the price difference between brewer's barley and uh, barley for grain or animal feed is astronomical. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you don't hit your quality targets on uh, the uh, the malted barley, that's probably not your family holiday this year. Yeah. So is it scored, like, organoleptically, as in they turn it into a beer and taste it and say this is great, or is it done through, like gas chromatograph mass spectrometry where they're, where they're trying to analyse the components of the barley or is it a bit of both? It's, it's a little all bit of both, both yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow, God, people think cocktail competitions are weird. That is, uh, that's, that's niche, right? And yeah. weather's a big one, you know, not, not to lay with the barley fact, but actually last year having a hot summer means that the price of beer went through the roof because all the winter stock for animal feed went, you know, and it's not just beer, it's whiskies as well. So these are all the natural conditions that we live in you know it's it's an ever-changing landscape and this is why so many things sort of fluctuate as well as quality and, and, and price of raw materials how much barley is in a pint of beer roughly in at sharps it's average about 86 grams per pint of beer 86 grams right so you're getting you're getting about 560 <coughs> grams of beer from 86 grams of barley i thought it would be more than that you, your maths is much better than mine. But there's a lot of water in beer as well, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. 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 Uh, like it is liquid. So yeah. Like 95% yeah. of your pint is water. Um, so t- talking about hops, I know we touched on it already and, and some of the stuff that came before hops. Um, it's it, what, was it, what was the purpose of hops, aside from flavouring? Was there anything else to it? It's lots of different purposes, I suppose. And I think, again, back to different countries using them for different reasons. So, yeah, 1000 AD, the Belgians... Like, I suppose it's the Benedictine monks that had so much influence through Europe anyway. They were used to foraging and using ingredients. But I suppose, again, you go the Halatau region of Germany, the most important. So it's the birth of the sort of... Where's that in Germany? Just north of Munich. Okay. Um, And that's where Halatau northern brewer hops are. But back to a lot of, I suppose, a lot of growing of any plants, hybridization of these plants. So you've got the SARS um, hop in the Czech Republic which is the dominant hop in most pilsners, um, but then hybridising these these other hop families. And then you've got Kent and Hereford in, in our country that was Fuggles and Goldings, but they probably derive from some of the Eastern European hops. But then you had this, the, this is where, and they would get, get onto the d- divisive word that is craft. Um, but New World Servions, understandably, um, in New Zealand, Australia, sort of, it's the same grape, 
but then packs full of loads and loads of aromas, you know, sort of punches you in the face with a bunch of gooseberries. And this is what's happened with New World Hops, New Zealand, um, Yakima Valley, the Citras, the Simcoes, the Cascades. And this is where we've had this massive rush of, of I suppose, the IPAs, ultimately, and, and these variants of IPAs. So yeah. the hop is, is so varied. So like... Certain other plants, it's measured in alpha acids, so you're getting bitterness and aroma from it. I suppose that was back to your first question as I've rambled on. That that was that was pretty much it, but also acts as a preservative as well. So, yeah, so it was used as, as to stop it from spoiling so quickly. That's correct, yeah? I don't think that was its prime purpose, but it was. it's a natural... I, I, again, I don't know whether it is a plan. Do correct me if I'm wrong, but I think... I just find it weird. Purposes. I just find it weird that we there's, like, one specific flower. It's a flower, right? Yes. One specific flower that is now in virtually every beer in the world. It's a bit like juniper and gin. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why do we flavor it with juniper? Mm. What was the, what was, why why not cinnamon? Yeah. Or nutmeg or mace or, or, you know, lavender. Why, why that particular fruit at that particular time? And I'm just trying to understand why we chose hops over not another flower. It kind of coincided a little bit with the, um, the widespread nature of, of the written word. So um, monks in Belgium all of a sudden started writing down their beer recipes and distributing that around the place. And they mentioned hops for the first time. And until then it was literally what was local, what can you put in? And then all of a sudden recipes are going wider. People read, right, hops, hops are what have to go into beer. I love this. We've already established that beer, kick-started civilization and now we're saying it's the written word as well yeah. cool if, if we can just tick up a few a few more other sort of massively significant cultural um rites of passage then we'll we'll have fully <laughs> ticked off the beer thing as well um okay cool so hops and yeah you got hops in guinness yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny because uh, when i worked in the states and uh, we'd go to like beer shows beer festivals and you're pouring some beers and everybody wanted to know what's the ibu content of the beer what's the ibu content of the beer and really if, if you like the beer it doesn't really matter what's an ibu content can you explain that yeah so um so you were mentioning about alpha acids which is how you measure the bitterness of the hop itself but then when it goes into the beer it's measured in an international bitterness unit so basically the higher the amount of units in the beer the more bitter the the flavor or perceived flavor is and i think for a while people kind of got confused between the level of bitterness and the actual flavour of the beer. So mm. something like a, a Guinness Foreign Extra Stout is actually more bitter than a lot of IPAs, but because we rely more on the yeast and the barley for the flavour, you don't taste that it's almost 60 IBUs. Yeah. Because mm. so, some hops are more aromatic than they are bitter as well, right? So it's not necessarily, I guess, a measurement of hoppiness. It's just a measurement of bitterness, right? When the, Yeah, the, the alpha acids turned into iso-alpha acids in the boil. And that's where the bitterness, that sort of resinous thing that, that hits the back and side of your palate. And that's where the bitterness comes from. But yeah, um, Foxy is right. When it comes to um, stouts, it's the roasted bitterness. And that's where things can sort of, I suppose there's a different perception of roasted bitterness like you get from coffee versus hot bitterness. And it, it ended up being a bit bragging rights with um, IBUs. Yeah, because people time. like when people have hot curries and go, I can go five chilies or whatever the arbitrary measurement is. Um, and then it just became more and more bitter, which means you're dulling your senses. Mm. And balance and elegance and nuance was a little bit lost for quite a long time. It's in, the same in thing with uh, peatiness in whiskey. You know? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the peatier, the better. That was the way for a little while. Yeah. But you had a couple of breweries who kind of got into like almost like a hops arm race. And it was like, oh, our IBU level is 100. Ours is 200. Ours is 260. And I think the human palate can taste 
up to 80. Yes, yeah. exactly. And then it just taps out. <laughs> so anything higher than that, you're yeah. completely ruining the rest of your beer. Yeah, not to be too dull, but actually that knock-on effect for the rest of the industry, because Citra and Simcoe, say 2011, 2012, were the most popular hops in the world, all grown in the Yakima Valley at that time. Um, and it was you couldn't get hold of them for three years. So people that have been relying on this single hop variety, rather than most brewers will use a blend of hops, which means... Bobek one year from Slovenia will be of certain alpha acids and have certain characteristics. Um, but there's probably another three or four sort of woody, earthy, oldy worldy hops that have similar characteristics. But Simcoe and Citra were so unique that it sold out for three years. So people had to find alternatives and possibly some of the brewers weren't quite wise or savvy enough to know that, that's, that they had to use others. That's where sort of Cascade, Galaxy come in and a lot of the other sort of New World hops. Besides um, the different variety of hops, are there, are there estates growing hops that are like globally renowned for the quality, like you might find with wine or with coffee, yeah. where it's incredible prices because they produce a certain fine quality hop? Yeah. You're both nodding. That's the answer to the question. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Well, you eat us on uh, Citra and Simcoe. Like Galaxy hop is now the new, like, really really hard to find hop poster boy of the the beer hop scene at the minute it's yeah. increasingly difficult to find but that's one that kind of australia is probably renowned for mm. which part of the brewing process i think there's more than one actually are the hops actually added to the bit i mean we we, we touched upon the fact you use barley you grind that down right yeah and then you mash it with water right yeah. cook it and this is very very similar to the whiskey making process yeah. in fact the making process wash, of, yeah, of yeah. pretty much all all and then, and then, are the hops added at that point, or is it fermentation first? When do they go in? Yeah, it depends on what you need the hops to do. So, if you want to use them for bitterness and flavour, you're, you're throwing them in at that point. But if you want to use them more for that aroma, that especially with IPAs, you want to get that lovely kind of West Coast American kind of aromas coming through, and that's where it goes in more towards the end of the. the um, and is that that's what's called dry hopping? Yeah, cool, yes. cooler temperatures, but then yeah, get the bitterness and and some of the aroma. I suppose it's like macerating a tea bag. Like if you've got a really powerful tea, you know you need to put it in for a little while to get the best. Otherwise, you get really tannic stuff. Um, so yeah, generally three phases: body bittering early, about ninety-eight degrees or so, and then some of your aroma hops for a little while, and then back the aroma up in sort of post-fermentation into conditioning, and then you get those sort of lovely natural aromas. What's the conditioning process all about? Conditioning is generally post-fermentation. So conditioning at really cold temperatures uh, was lagering. Um, so it was put into sort of caverns underneath the breweries in, in Munich and in Germany. Um, but conditioning is the time that yeast sort of settles down and the beer to mature, you know, to, to balance things out, to even things out. Um, and also you reduce the risk of off flavours, sulphurs, H2S and that sort of thing from where the yeast is still sort of overreacting to creating more alcohol ultimately. So is, is Guinness conditioned in that way? Or yeah, I mean, you, you'd have to wait and let the... Because our, our yeast is actually... Um, we try and use the house yeast as much as we can in any new beer that we do. And we've discovered a lot of things about Guinness yeast over the years that it's uh, a very flexible yeast. So we've we've brewed vice beers using Guinness yeast and it gives you that clovey, phenolic kind of a flavour. Um, but also it's very aggressive. That's interesting. So yeah. even on a beer that would normally be quite light, you're getting some of those like Guinness-like qualities yeah. coming through yeah. and, and again in, in the conditioning stage one of the off flavors that if you were to brew a lager and you get a flavor of diacetyl it's kind of like a butterscotch kind of a flavor that's not good in a lager or some of the lighter ales but it's actually a flavor that we look for in something like a foreign extra stout where you get a little bit more of butterscotch flavor towards the end yeah. so yeah so depending on the beer that we're brewing conditioning is a hugely important part of it i love these chats because i chat to brewers a lot brewers are conditioned like chefs are conditioned to work one way as were cocktail barmen mm. and then you know 
again to stroke your ego you, you guys this generation of mixologists or molecular mixologists you sort of bent the rules to a certain extent and and we need to do this in the brewing industry because again diacetyl you speak to a brewer and go no 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 but actually especially with foreign extra stout you need something to mellow things out because it is bitter there's a lot of roasted bitterness to it as well you need that sort of butterscotch mouthfeel as well as flavor just to balance things out you know and the beer world right now is probably the most exciting in terms of yeast development. So yeah. for, you know, 150 years, people spent like science and everything trying to get rid of a lot of flavours out of beer. And now all of a sudden we're back into wild yeasts mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So um, it probably scientists turning in their graves going, I've spent years and years and years. Yeah. But it's really fun to be able to go back through history and kind of go, well, actually, maybe we just didn't use this yeast correctly, that there is a different way that this yeast is going to interact with different ingredients and different ways of doing things. Mm. Yeah. But I, I suppose you still got to get the basics right as well, because I think people uh, there's a lot of breweries out there uh, which is great but with this massive sort of proliferation of, of breweries and beers wild yeast you know for our breweries it's it can be lethal because it can spoil the rest of the rest of our beers and I don't think people possibly aren't doing enough due diligence in learning about the basics of beers first before they go straight into a you know, a, a milkshake goes or some sort of wild and wacky flavours. Yeah, we we can play around with lactobacillus and various other strains of wild yeast in the baby brewery, but there's no chance of it ever going down to the big brew house. Because it could take over like a... Yeah. 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 Well, like a bacteria takes over. Yeah. Effectively, yeah. 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 If someone listens to this, they've probably just about all got all the information they need to establish this themselves. But just so it's as clear as possible, what is the difference between a lager and an ale? Um, I'd, I'd say yeast. So historically... It's it's slightly different now, but historically it was town of pills and bottom fermenting yeast versus a top fermenting yeast. So the yeast sits at the bottom? Yeah, naturally just sits at the bottom um, and Saccharomyces cerevisiae rises to the top. Mm-hmm. Um, temperature as well. Lagers ferment at cooler temperatures, ales ferment at warmer temperatures and therefore give off different aromas, different esters, different flavours, ale quite fruity. Lager, there are some quite harsh sulfuric aromas in there, hence lagering is essential because it reabsorbs some of those sulfur aromas. And lager tends to be more carbonated as well than... Oh, a bit of a misconception. Mm. These are the, like, yeah, there's a lot of them. I We must hear it a lot, and I think this is why I quite enjoy my job and why I talk far too much, sorry, Foxy, um, of, you know... L- the general misconceptions. My favourite is probably lagers full of chemicals because we, we as a nation in you know in England especially, we've sort of demonised lagers, and I don't think it's quite fair because one, it's quite a flawed statement when you say yeah, lagers full of chemicals, everything's full of chemicals. You know, it's 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 quite laughable, and this is where we need to sort of bring the respect and romanticism into every beer style because they all have a pinpoint in history and importance. And especially when you go visit other breweries as well, you know, um, there used to be a whole saying that, you know, I'll, you know, I'll taste all your beers, whatever else, but I'll judge you by your lager because they mm-hmm. are actually really difficult to brew and mm, get yeah. that flavour. You, you want to avoid that sulfuric kind of element to it. And I think people don't give lager brewers enough credit for the, the actual time, effort, skill it takes to brew yes. a really good lager. There's nowhere to hide with exactly. flavour. Well, I guess it, it, lager kind of became a mass market product and like familiarity breeds contempt doesn't yes, it once it's it everywhere yeah. you're like well it must be rubbish yeah um which but, but then you have to go back to well why did it become a mass market product yeah. because people really like it's really good <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah fair enough um right shall we try something cool um yeah so i'll crack this open so i as you mentioned i work for the uh the guinness open gate brewery which is kind of our little experimental wing so we have a one hectolitre brewery 
a 10 hectolitre brewery. So the one hectolitre is effectively 100 litres of beer in a batch. The 10 hectolitre is 1,000. And the tap room is the only customer for any of the beer that gets produced on the 1,000 litre. And then if people are really enjoying it and people give us really good feedback in the tap room, it might make it down to the big brew house, which is... Uh, a whole different size thing. Mm. So it's kind of like the, the one heck liter is like making a nice cup of tea for yourself. The the 10 heck liter is kind of making a cup of pot of tea for when your family call over. And then the big brew house is like catering for a wedding. So it's not just a case you add in extra tea bags. There's a whole uh, process behind it. So we, we do like experiment styles. So, you know, Guinness now makes sour beers and introduce lactobacillus and a lot of IPAs, double IPAs, New England IPAs, trying to see what's in, in style, low alcohol, low ABV beers. But we also go back into the archives and kind of see what we can take from the the 250 odd years of brewing history and this one is kind of one of the older styles of stouts that we would brew but what's really kind of special about this one is that we still have a lot of the old vats from there we go it, um, I should say that this is in our the bottle that Padraig's opening is in it's like a champagne bottle yeah in every way except it's got Guinness branding on it and it's matte black and looks just pretty cool. Yeah, yeah so, super cool. So that's why we got our, the pop. So yeah. yeah. So this is our uh, seventeen ninety eight limited edition stout. So again, it's nine percent ABV. Um, what it is is one of the more historical styles of stout that we brew. But we took one of our vat houses from seventeen ninety eight, and uh, this almost killed the archivist, but ground it up and put the beer over the wood chips from the vat. So when you go back and go through those vats and think about how much beer has gone through there, mm. and this was back in the days when there were still those little creepy crawlies in the wood that would give flavour over time. So what you're going to get is like a lovely, real velvety, chocolatey kind of flavour from the stout, but then a little bit more of a, almost like a Black Forest Gatto element from some of the flavours that's drawn in from the wood. So you grind the wood down into chips and then infuse it into the beer. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. And how old are the vats? Uh, 1798. So. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Um, fantastic. Well, look, like this beer is going to tell a story. Yeah. Let's, let's try it. It's bizarre because when I first started working for Guinness, I wasn't really a stout drinker. Uh, changed that quite quickly. <laughs> What, what do you need to do to a beer in order for it to be classed as a stout? And what's the difference between a stout and a porter? Well, nowadays the line has become quite blurred between the two, but traditionally a stout was almost like a thicker version of a porter. So porters were really popular in London. You look at the, mm-hmm. you know, the rise of fullers and breweries like that. Um, the, the porter was what the guys on the docks would drink. It was like a real dark, almost like a nourishing kind of a beer. Yeah. And then Arthur Guinness kind of brought the, the concept over to Ireland and made it so we started off brewing porters and then grew into more of a stout brewery because it had a little bit of a a thicker viscosity to it Um, nowadays uh, you can have like a a porter that's 8, 9, 10% ABV and a stout that's 2% so the line has become blurred quite a bit but again in a stout you're looking for a little bit more depth of flavour a little bit more um, coffee earthy kind of tones and a porter maybe a little bit more lighter coffee kind of flavours yeah and is that down to a different proportion of the like the roasted malt, or is it is, and also the yeast as well? And what what gives it the texture though? The, the you mentioned like a kind of viscosity to it. How is the production process different between the two to give it that? Um, if if you take something like a Guinness Extra Stout, which is kind of a four point five five percent, depending on where you drink it in the world, four point five five percent beer, and that's carbonated, and that would have developed from a porter. Um, if you compare that to maybe one of the more London styles of porter, you just feel that the body is just that little bit lighter, uh, or sorry, a little bit lighter in the porter. So um, often the porters would use something like uh, dark malt versus roasted, uh, and all of our stouts would use roasted versus dark malt. Mm. So you get a little bit more of that real heavy kind of earthy coffee kind of flavors on it. And then um, science and magic in the brewing process would give you a little bit of the, the thicker uh, viscosity to it. Science as well. and magic. Um, okay. 
And then there's the gas as well, right? Because Guinness uses different gas, doesn't it? So, so. Guinness Draft uses different gas, um, which is nitrogen. So it was actually perfected in our old Park Royal Brewery in London. Mm-hmm. A guy called Michael Ash was given a, a specific project to figure out how the Guinness in Ireland poured and tasted different from the Guinness in the UK. Because it was very same recipe. Uh, it was brewed in two different breweries, but very same recipe. Both dispensed in the exact same way. And he worked on this for four years um, and he figured it out that it's actually nitrogen. So nitrogen is in air. So the old cask pump system, pubs in Ireland were a little bit busier. So the pump was moving a little bit quicker. So you were getting more nitrogen actually going into the beer, which was giving this lovely smooth, creamy head on it. Mm-hmm. And then over time, perfected this into what it is now. Uh, 1959 going into the steel kegs and uh, the two-part pour giving it the real smooth nitrogen head on it. So prior to 1959, you would have got a beer with uh, a Guinness with CO2 in it yeah. and it wouldn't have looked the same. No, a little bit of a different head uh, on it. And te- can, texturally you, would have been different as well. Yeah, mm. so you can still get it. Uh, Guinness Extra Stout uh, okay. is available in, in bottles. Uh, so my grandfather would, would always drink Guinness Extra Stout. Right, I've, I've had that before. I didn't realise that there was a different um, gas in there. Okay. Yeah. So it's effectively more or less the same beer, just different gas. Yeah. And that does affect the flavour as well. So when you put nitrogen into a beer, um, the more creamy the head on it, you do get a little bit less of those kind of like bitter flavours towards the end. So nitrogen dulls a little uh, bit of the flavour that comes through. And what about when you get it in a can? Because it's got a device in there, right, that does some, and that really is magic. Yeah, like, so that's the, 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 the widget. So it's almost like a little uh, ping pong ball, mm. uh, which has nitrogen in it. So when you open up your can, the little ball whizzes around, releases the nitrogen into the beer. So same technology as when you're pouring it in the pub with the gas dispense system, just in a can. And then there's the surger units as well, which are double magic because yeah. that's just cause... ultrasonic sound magic. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. that's pure magic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the fun thing about the widget is uh, it won the Queen's Award for Innovation in 1989, and uh, the invention that came second was the internet. That's <laughs> awesome! <laughs> Great. Oh, I man, told you I'm going to dine out so on that fact. We've got civilization, now, language, and bettering the internet yeah. because <laughs> of carbonation of beer or nitrogenation of beer. That's yeah. brilliant. This is really quite a you know seminal podcast we're yeah. doing here, you know. Okay, cool. Um, let's taste this. We're sitting in front of us. Um, so I've, um, I've kept this unchilled because, again, you go back to extra stout, it would have always been served warm off the shelf because rural Ireland got electricity in 1957. And a lot of pubs used to uh, take barrels from Guinness and actually bottle it themselves. And they had to um, hit a number of quality targets on it. So you couldn't put your pub name on it unless Guinness had approved that you were licensed to fill the bottles. And if you were uh, selling somebody else's stout in a Guinness bottle with your pub name on it, you actually had to write an apology in the national newspaper. Wow. But this is a pride and heritage. It's back to the importance. This is the pride and heritage. And and Guinness is an institution in brewing history. And it is something to be revered and respected. That's um, amazing. It's so like meaty, right? Yeah. It's big. I mean, we, we actually want to talk about food pairing a little bit, but that's surely like that needs to be paired with something like some big gamey meat, right? Steak yeah, or... we, we find like um, grilled food, particularly mm. meat, you know, because mm. you're roasting the barley, you, you roast your food to a high flame grilled temperature. Um, roast barley seems to work really well with like barbecue food, grilled, big gamey venison kind of meats. Yeah. That's like chocolate, dessert. I mean, it, I think it re- I'd go as far as to say it needs food, especially at this temperature, because, you know, I think for a lot of people, beer is something that should give a certain element of refreshment. Yeah. You know, yeah. this isn't refreshing, really, to me. It's like it's it's like when I drink a really lovely coffee, you know, and I go, wow, that's, you know, the complexity, the flavor, the depth, the roasted quality, that bitterness coupled with just a little bit of sweetness, the texture on the palate, all those things going on, which are interesting, but perhaps not 
but perhaps for a particular occasion with beer. You yeah, know? there's definitely a, like a beer for every occasion. Like, you know, you could drink one style of beer your entire life and uh, miss out on some of the other flavors. So in the tap room, the way we operate is you kind of pay a cover charge and then you get a four flight taster of beer when you come in. But it's up to you whether you want to pick the four beers or let us pick the four beers for you. And we get a lot of people who's like, oh, I don't like beer. Mm. And then you ask them what beers they've had and they'll name five lagers or five ales yeah. or five stouts. I'm like, well, it's not that you don't like beer, it's that you don't like lager or you don't like stouts. So then we get to work with them and go, well, here's a Pilsner, here's a Sour, here's a Red Ale and here's a Barrel aged Stout. And we have a pretty good conversion rate of people coming back going, oh, I had no idea beer could taste like this. Where, mm. where can you find this? What would you pair this with? Especially red wine drinkers, something like this. It's got the same kind of big, full-bodied mouthfeel, that little element of like the barrel aging process to it. So something like this is the perfect beer for a red wine drinker yeah. to start exploring beer a little bit more. Yeah. This is where our job becomes really gratifying because yeah, it sounds like we've got quite similar similar jobs. There's so many people that don't drink beer and refuse to drink beer because they might have had it at some point and didn't like it but then they tar all beers with the same brush. Mm. Um, and there is a beer for everyone, whether it's a fruit beer, you know, your stouts, your porters, there's so much variation. It can be 2%, it can be 22%, like super sweet, super sour. For someone to say you don't like beer, and there's a whole world of beer, it's it's a pretty flawed statement. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, like, the... it's like saying you don't like music. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So this is the thing, though. So <clears throat> beer now has, there is so much diversity within the category, isn't there? There's different strengths. There's different levels of hoppiness, lightness, um, aromatic qualities ranging from citrus through to sort of darker fruits and coffee, butterscotch you mentioned earlier in certain types of beer. And that is, you know, a huge benefit to the category because, wow, there's, there's a beer for everyone, as you mm -hmm. say. But, of course, the flip side of that is there's too many different types of beer, some would say. Like, how do you go about navigating this landscape of beer now when there are hundreds of different ones available in supermarkets in some bars there are maybe 20 30 different draft pours and perhaps twice that in bottles so that it'd be nice just for a few minutes to touch upon the kind of key styles that are available now and perhaps between the three of us well i'm going to get you guys to do it basically imagine like what would be a perfect sort of six tap um arrangement of beers that would kind of nicely cover the entire category. Oh, I like this. Yeah. It's a good challenge, thinking on the spot. Um, so obviously Guinness is in there. It has to be. <laughs> like It has to be. But also, you know, Trig, you're an operator as well. There's Ed keeps calling me by my childhood nickname in Sorry. case anyone's noticed. <laughs> Sorry. I've actually got written down on a bit of paper here, Tristan, not Trig, but I never got around to showing it to him. Oh, so I didn't it, see that. Sorry, hey, don't Sorry worry. Tristan. No, don't worry. It's I'm also calling you Trig now. Well. We've, yeah. we've got Foxy here as well. Um, Padraig's surname's Fox and his nickname's Foxy, he told us. So we've got Foxy Trig. and um, I don't have a nickname. No, you don't. No. But Foxy well, Trig and Ed sounds like a really awesome detective agency. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> right, we're diversifying. I've got a feeling if you put Foxy in the title of any detective agency, <laughs> yeah, it's going to work yeah, quite well. Very true. Um, so anyway, we were saying... Um, As an operator, um, the, the one thing that I find um, quite regularly, a lot of people that buy beer for a bar buy on their personal preference rather than what they'll possibly sell. Um, and that's... I think it's, it's sort of quite unique in, in the food and drink industry that they, they people can be quite di dismissive of a certain beer because of its ubiquitous nature, maybe. Um, or it's because they don't like it. Um, whereas, you know, you put a jukebox in, we're in the service industry, people put songs on that they want to hear. Um, and that's it's sort of, I know it's seemingly 
ridiculous analogy, but this is what we've got to get over. You know, with your challenge of six beers, Guinness has to be there. What would be a kind of nice encompassing selection of beers to put on tap that would really kind of meet the the needs of anyone? A non-beer drinker, someone who really knows their beer, someone who's into hoppy stuff, someone who likes stouts, porters, that kind of thing. How would we, what, what would you do? Well, yeah, I suppose you need a, you, you need a good benchmark, say a 4% lager, and then possibly one stronger. I'd say, you know, as we're in London and in this country, you need an amber ale um, or a best bitter. I think you need an IPA, and I think you probably need a New World IPA as well. But then, you know, the beer geek in me says you need a wheat beer as well as a lambic in there to mm. actually look at the, the, the basics of beer first. Mm. I'd even throw in a cask beer on that as well. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it effectively died out as a culture in Ireland. And every time I'm in the UK now, I was like, I can't wait to get my hands on a yeah. a cask beer. What's the difference between cask and kegged beer then? That's something we should probably address. Cask, um, links into your, your Guinness point earlier on, cask is is still living and breathing. Yeah, we, we I suppose, what, we brew about a million and a half pints a week in, in rock. Um, and you tap a cask and then it starts, oxygen gets into it. There is no top pressure of of CO2 or nitrogen. There's nothing to preserve it. And the the art of being a cellarman can be a little bit lost. Like cask needs to be looked after. Um, like a vegetable or a fruit or yeah, whatever just needs to be you tended tap it, to. Yeah. You tap it, you let it settle, um, and then you need to sell it in, in three days as an operator. Um but I think back to the industry, what we haven't done enough, and actually... And so keg beer, sorry, then the, the difference there is it's it's sort of sterile, it's been sort of neutralised and... Pasteurised, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's got top pressure, so you've got you've got longer to serve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And for the most part, it's carbonated as well. Yeah. Um, so you're going to get a lot more bubbles rising up through it than a, than a cask beer is. Okay. Yeah. And cask has got CO2, but it's a natural CO2 that's part of that conditioning process. And it's there, soft mouthfeel, um, but again, can be sort of demonised because it's been mistreated because... It's just, it's that tarring a whole, I suppose, a whole style of beer with the same brush of it's warm and it's flat, whereas in fact it's not flat, it's nuanced in CO2. But it is warm. But it's warmer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it depends what your warm is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's, What's cellar temperature? Like 11 degrees or something? 13 degrees. 13 degrees. Yeah. yeah, so it's sort of halfway between a fridge and room temperature, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. And that's optimum temperature. But again, there is a, I wouldn't say there's a right or wrong way because some people like their beer. Yep warm warm mm. which is fine you can't it's not it shouldn't be a dictatorship but what what guinness has done really well is quality and i think that's why guinness stands above most other beers because it's the care it's the heritage but also the quality it's the test they know if if a a bar hasn't quite got the run rate then you go into can and that's where the surgery unit comes in Mm. It's a, it's a, just a very clever way because of, of pride and passion, and mm. that's exactly the same. That's exactly how we we feel with with cask because we know it's been mistreated in the past. We, I mean, so uh, Padre Ed, Ed sort of reckons a couple of lagers, uh, amber ale, a couple of different IPAs of varying hoppiness, and a Guinness, of course. Have you got any other beers that you would? What did you put on the tap room then? It rotates so we, a lot, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, so we, we usually get a new beer every week mm-hmm. and we try and kind of have a, a wide variety of styles because, again, a lot of our customers just don't really drink beer. Uh, we actually get a lot of first dates uh, because the, the flight works really well as a uh, kind of a conversation starter. So you can make your flight last as long or as short as, as depending on how the date is going. Um, so we try and cater <laughs> to as many different tastes as we can. So we'd usually have something like a, a, a Pilsner or a Hellas, um, something sour, whether that's a, a Creek or a Lambic or a, a 
goza or something something that just has a little bit more of a tart kind of a sour fruit flavour to it uh, a kind of pale ale 3.8 something a little bit stronger 6.5% IPA and then that can branch into a, a double IPA or a New England IPA uh, obviously we always have Guinness Draft on and we would probably have a hoppy lager and maybe something barrel aged as well so you're trying to hit nice. as many different flavour profiles as you can across it and you know sometimes we do we do a stout festival where 80% of the taps will be just stouts and different varieties of stouts. So, so you've got like Baltic porters, uh, random flavours like coconut porters, something barrel aged, something with a strawberry in it, something really different that people wouldn't expect to see in a stout. And then we might do an IPA festival where you go the hoppy end of things and maybe do the same beer, but using different hops in each variety of it to showcase how hops can really yeah. impact on your beer. Mm. But for the most part, we try and keep it as wide and varied as possible. So somebody will find their beer in there. So in your top six beers, we both me and Foxy will have about twenty. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, but at least we'd spend the time with our customers to chat them through all, all twenty. Maybe the key here, like you say, is rotation. It's keeping things fresh because I, I think that by constantly off, constantly changing the offering, but keeping it still reasonably concise and curated, that that kind of gives a. Uh, you know, a, a bit of excitement for your guests. They can keep coming back and seeing what you've got on. They can explore the new stuff you're trying out. Also for, for staff as well, though, it's not boring. It's not, yeah, we've still got the same thing on. You can try that if you want. You know, they actually get to, it's a constant learning process because they're learning from the brewers about what's been made and then they are probably more engaged in like, regaling that to the guests as they come in well we talked about it before we started the podcast that we had to go and research this stuff ourselves when we started off in the hospitality industry mm -hmm. we had to you know go searching for articles and stuff and now the information is a little bit wider it's a lot more easier to find but um like our staff particularly are they're so keen to learn about different beer styles and then pass that knowledge on to customers so mm -hmm. we uh, intentionally don't ram out the place because we want everybody to come in and have a kind of a four or five minute chat at the bar talk about beer styles discover their flavor if they're a gin and tonic drinker, hey, try this. If they're, uh, you know, something else, hey, try this. And it's that kind of interaction that means they'll be a little bit more open to, to beer the yeah. next time they're out somewhere. So rather than just like going, oh, no, I don't, I don't drink beer, they'll remember at that time that they had, oh, actually, I actually had a, a creek uh, yeah. in the bar. Yeah, if you have that, I'll, I'll have that. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it's about kind of just helping people on their journey, isn't it? Taking their hand and leading them through because otherwise they, if, if that doesn't happen, they don't get a chance to explore probably because it's intimidating. It's hugely intimidating. There's, yeah. there's so many different beers out there. You don't know where to start. And But also I think that it's just as good to taste something you don't like that as something you don't like. Well, probably not just as good, but nearly as good because... You know, it's like any, it's like a lot of things. You learn better from your mistakes than you do your successes. And when you taste a beer that you don't like, it's still quite exciting to kind of fumble around in the dark and find that part of the category and go, ah, okay, well, I've tried it. I'm pretty sure I don't like it. It's not for me. But nonetheless, it's a, it's you know, it's a, it, it's that area ticked off, and I I can use that to my advantage when I'm choosing another beer. Oh well, I don't like. You know, lambic beers, yeah. for example. As long as they've been signposted in the first place, because that's that's the danger of damning all beer mm. when they had that one beer that could have been, you know, uh, a sour, and they mm. go, "Well, that beer was sour. I just don't like beer," because it might have been the first time that they've sort of tried to get back into beer. Mm. Because I don't think the signposts are right in our industry yet. You know, mm. if we think of a supermarket, we go to South Africa for a, a Shenin or New Zealand serving on, we understand the basic signposts in the last 20 years, the average Joe or Josephine have been educated. With beer, it's just gone boom. Hmm. 
and then you've got wheat beers next to double IPAs, next to unfiltered, next to and there's there's so many beers out there. I think you can just you can see this wall of confusion because I don't think the basic signposts yeah, are there yeah. just yet. I think the worst thing that can happen to somebody who isn't really into beer, they go into a supermarket and they go, All right, all my mates are drinking IPAs, I'll I'll grab this and oh, I like stouts, I'll grab this and now they've spent nine, ten quid on two cans of beer, one of which is a seven point five percent triple IPA and yeah. one of which is a, a barrel aged marshmallow infused stout. They'll yeah. taste both of them and go, All right, craft beer is not for me and yeah. then they just won't try it again. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, the first thing that's like supermarkets or any um, off trade needs to start doing is stop arranging beer by brewery mm-hmm. and start arranging it by style, flavor, right? Yeah, I mean, I, would you think that's the right way of doing it? Because I, I feel like it'd be much easier if all of the stouts were in one place, all of the IPAs were in another place, all of the super strong double, triple, quadruples were in another place, yeah, and then. You, you can still find your favorite brewery, but find it in the appropriate area where you're going to find the appropriate flavor. Because I'm, you know, I'm anyone listening to the podcast knows I'm all about flavor. It's flavor yeah. first, yeah. Yes. and then you know the brewer or the location comes after that. And if you want, you might not even want to know about that. Yeah. You might you just want you might just want flavor. Um, so organizing by flavor first, surely that has to be the first obvious. I completely step. agree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because I think there's so many so many breweries. It's quite hard to navigate your way around. So beer style is is a really good way of, of signposting, but actually flavour's probably even better. And, I mean, we've talked about different places where beer is made and the culture that surrounds that, but of course beer is served in many different places as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our own kind of culture of beer drinking here. America's not dissimilar, I think. Lots of IPAs are very popular at the moment, but how does it differ around the world? What sort of beers are they drinking in South America and Asia and Mexico and North America and so on? South America is growing massively as well. I think I, I was judging a couple of years ago and a lot of the, the Brazilian brewers are, are winning a lot of awards, but again, steeped in tradition. A lot of Pilsners, a lot of really good classic styles. Beer's, beer's not just going boom in the States um, and here. You know, it's very solid in, in Germany. Mostly it's domestic market um, with the Reinheitsgebot sort of purity law, but everywhere breweries are cropping up left right and center where does the tradi- where does that come from in brazil then of all places where are they i mean is it immigrants coming in or is there just a kind of movement towards craft and therefore they're borrowing techniques from all over the world oh i think it's a bit of everything and i think it's like the the mid 1800s it's it, it's not just the germans that are traveling brewers are traveling and looking at different markets and this is the wonderful thing about the drinks industry you know as a collective you know, the good, successful businesses are growing in different markets as, as markets are growing. And it's not just the brewers who are traveling. It's like people are traveling themselves to, to experience different things. So they're coming back with different ideas. You know, you go to experience the local culture. What was the beer you had there? Well, it's not available in my country. Maybe somebody should brew this. And it's re- like it's not limited to the people who are making it. It's the people who are drinking it. So when they go, they're looking for different flavors, different styles when they come back. And I think the world is becoming um, more and more smaller. So yeah. we as a back to humanity and civilization, we're closer connected now than we've ever been before and ideas just flash across the, the world. Whether you're traveling or not, it, the internet is an amazing uh, tool like Twitter, Facebook, pictures tell a thousand words. I'm, and I'm not going to ask this question because it's obvious, but I'll just ask it anyway. How important is glassware in beer and what should what considerations should like a good beer operator be taking when it comes to glassware and what's appropriate for each type of beer? I'd say chalice glass. You know, and I think, you know, for everything, for everything, if you want to take in flavor for everything. Um, And I think with beer, I think we need to try harder. And, you know, when when I do tastings, it's either a standard ISO tasting glass 
or put beer in a brandy balloon mm. because it's not just about the the chalice shape and accentuating aromas and sort of taking the flavor it's actually a bit of a jedi mind trick as soon as you put beer into a brandy balloon the drinker respects that liquid so much more and that gives us chance to talk about mm. the history of the the beer yep. the brewers that have nurtured these incredible ingredients and why they've studied beer mm. yeah and like the american craft beer revolution has just been phenomenal for the beer industry in a whole but not in glassware because the standard serve is a 16-ounce uh, shaker-style glass. And the reason that they became so popular and connected with beer is because they're, they're quite um, freely available. So they were designed to shake ice in cocktails. Mm. So every bar had them. And Boston. they just became this de facto mm. beer glass. Boston glass, Boston. we yeah, call yeah, them in cocktail yeah. circuits. Yeah. You have a yeah. lot of cocktail bartenders listening to this. So yeah. 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 yeah, but it, it's statistically probably the worst glass to put your beer into because it's it keeps getting wider and wider and wider so you're going to lose head height you're going to lose the uh, carbonation you're going to lose all the aromas all the flavours yeah. and especially in the 16 ounce ones it's just going to get warmer and warmer and warmer which is good for barrel aged beers and darker beers but not necessarily for lighter flavours mm. yeah but Guinness is synonymous with a pint right I mean we're mm. not going to break away from that very easily it is it's it's. I mean it, you watch some sporting events and it has the outline of the pint glass to remind you that yeah. Guinness is sponsoring it right it's yep. so synonymous with a pint glass and a lot of Guinness drinkers would struggle to have it in any other glass even if it was a pint with a stem they'd probably feel a little bit weird about it so there is a time right where it's appropriate to put a drink in that glass absolutely yep. fine yeah. yeah and I don't think there's anything wrong with it but I don't think that you can really appreciate the drink if you drink it in that quantity of a pint. Hmm. We keep talking about Belgium and Belgium just do it right. Every yes. beer has its own glass and mm. it, it's, it is mostly chalice. That's one yeah, of the yeah. most exciting things about going to Belgium, right? Like every beer has a branded glass and so you go, you go through this, it's not just a journey of beer, it's a journey of glassware throughout yeah, an yeah. evening in a, in a good Belgian bar. Yeah, It's beer to them. Hmm. So it is an institution and they automatically respect it. They're not just avid drinkers of that beer and that beer only which we can have a little bit of a case of that in in our part of the world mm. um it's just yeah all beers wonderful i don't know if you've seen it uh Padre, there's an instagram account i think it's some guy based in london and all he does is he goes around drinking guinness and posts up poor serves of guinness where people have really messed it up the wrong glass a massive head on it you know, half full pint. It's hilarious. If you don't follow it already, it's hilarious. I follow it. <laughs> <laughs> because there's an equivalent guy in, in Dublin who rates his pints every pub he goes to. Mm. Uh, oh, brilliant. And it's just such a conversation starter. Mm. It, it's really hard to find a beer that just has that kind of fanatical following, uh, whether it's like, here's a good pint, here's a bad pint, here's yeah. this glass, here's this pub, here's this is, This is exactly what I'm getting at. It's like, you, you name another drink, another drink, where pretty much anyone has an has an understanding of the correct way in which it can be it should be served you know there may be maybe there's a, like certain coffee drinks like a latte or a cappuccino people know instinctively when something's wrong with that mm -hmm. there's not many drinks where anyone anyone off the street would look at it and go you've messed that up entirely but Guinness is is one of them, definitely. Yeah, and when I worked in the uh, the draft quality team, I think 95% of our emergency call-outs for the pint not being right was ultimately down to the last, you know, uh, two foot between the bar tap and the glass. So yeah. every every pint goes through almost 300 quality checks before it leaves the brewery. Yeah, the, Where most of the issues happen is when it gets to the bar. So dirty glass straight away. Yeah. Shouldn't be in it. Because you get the bubbles in it and everything. Uh, right? Exactly. Yeah. Especially places that serve food. So, you know, if you think when you see the glass collectors coming around and four fingers going into the glass oh. and you just transfer that yeah, little bit my, of food grease in. Some of my bugbears there. You yeah. Get me. And especially yeah. with a dark liquid, it's going to show up a lot worse on the inside of the glass 
or you know slopping it over the top and things like that I think it, there's nowhere to hide on the glass with a darker beer with a creamy head like that mm-hmm. it's, it, you just see it straight off whereas lagers to an extent you may not pick it up initially but the more you get into the glass you are probably going to pick up yeah. those flavour issues as well mm. or too much detergent in the glass water yeah. there's there's so much and you know we, we have the same thing and this is why you know you're such wonderful cast custodians of of beer and we have to be you know we're trying to do the same thing with cascale because you know people keeping food in a cellar because it's cooler than outside and a cellar needs to be treated like a kitchen you know you you work with chefs they clean their kitchen down and sometimes a cellar is a little bit of an afterthought so we have to go in and it's it's not audit it's train people with the absolute basics and beer is a food stuff so you know if you go to supermarket and buy a liter of milk you don't leave it sitting on your kitchen counter for a week yeah. and expect it to still taste the same at the end of it. Yeah. It's, you know, everything is part of that whole quality chain to make sure it gets to the customer's lips as best condition as possible. Steeped in tradition, stouts exist because of London and hard water and and, and Dublin and hard water. Brewers are a little bit like musicians. They're not creating things from nothing. They're taking inspiration from what's been in the past. And so we need to be students of beer before we become revolutionaries. Mm. Oh, that was good. Like that? We'll keep that in. <laughs> I'm not sure about the rest of it. but <laughs> uh, that, that should be printed on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know this is a question that I might be able to answer myself, but I want to get your take on where we think beer is appropriate as perhaps a substitute for another ingredient or as you know a specific type of modifier or perhaps in place of where you might normally use a carbonated mixer to lengthen a cocktail. I'd, I'd go Tom Collins. Okay. And then short pour the gin, but then you top it up with you know a new world pilsner yeah something light yeah, yeah. so yeah. rather than 50 mil gin take it down to 35 mil gin then yeah the same Let uh, lemon and sugar it. and then lengthen yeah. out with a pilsner yeah. or you could maybe use a wheat beer because they're quite citrusy fresh quite light right yeah, man. something like yeah. that we actually do a range of beer cocktails at the tap room as well because you know some people still won't like beer very few but still won't like it at the end of it and we don't do spirits right up we don't do wine so as an alternative uh, we do uh, kind of a limited range of, of beer cocktails and we try and pair it with what's on the tap at the time but our two biggest sellers are like a hop house bellini which is like a little bit of raspberry puree, prosecco, and topped off with hop house because a little bit of New World hops yeah. really help with the flavour on it. A little um, garnish of a raspberry on the side of it always works really well. And our other big seller is an espresso stout martini. Yeah, nice. well, I was going to say, because nice. stouts and darker beers, you can substitute coffee out of cocktails quite well for that, can't yeah. you? Your Bellini, it's like a kind of DIY creek type beer, right? Because they're normally fruit. fruit Effectively, beer. yeah. Fruit yeah. sour, yeah. yeah. And the reason we stumbled upon that one is we actually ran out of Creek. And Creek was like hugely popular <laughs> yeah. when we had it. And we ran out of it. And people came back in the following week going, oh, it's gone. It's like, oh, we'll make you something that tastes like it really quick. And it just exploded. Does it foam like really badly when you try and mix the two together? That's what normally happens with fruit puree and fizzy drinks. No, it? it actually works quite well. Okay. So I'll tiny little bit of a base of the fruit puree, then put in the Prosecco and then top it off with the beer. Oh, you've got Prosecco in there as well. Yeah. Okay, yeah. right. So yeah. a combination. Got or even if it's just put, you know, a Hellas or a Pilsner into a champagne flute for a special occasion. Um, it works. Yeah, people still, you kind of, everything is there. It looks the same. It's the right glass, the right weight. The carbonation is perfect. The color, the translucency, the opacity or whatever. It just tastes slightly different, but you can usually slip that one under the radar a little bit and go, it tastes different, but it's fine. You know, it still feels like it's a celebratory drink. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. I do, you know, do a lot of dinners or, you know, events back at home. There'll be especially that we're involved in, we'll have Pilsner and Champagne. So, you, again, service industry, 
you you need people. Not everyone likes champagne or prosecco, and so you give them the option. But it's in the same glass because back to that flute, we treat that flute with respect and we celebrate、mm. with that flute. So where do we see the future of beer going? What are the next trends as far as you guys can see it? I think it's almost going to come a little bit full circle and go back to more historical traditional styles. So、yeah. at, at some point we're going to get hopped out. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing this rise of sours at the moment.、Mm. Um, I think sours are going to be around to stay because it's a really approachable style once you get the right one.、Um, but I think people are really going to get back into pilsners, hellas,、yes. good base porters, the, the real traditional styles that made beer what it is now. Yeah, I want to see colches and barley wines. You know, and, and yeah, in the ideal world for us is, is people to look at history and and revere really good brewers、mm. and balance and elegance. We've been through fifteen years of. Big, big flavors and really, really intense flavors.、Um, let's see sort of nuances come through. Like a good pastry chef, lemon tart is the basic. That is, you judge a good pastry chef by lemon tart. Like Foxy said at the beginning, you judge a good brewer by lager. So want to see the hellasses and you know and colches. So really light ales. Yeah, balance and elegance. It's interesting. I think like that optimism for going back to the roots is. Quite comparable to a lot of spirit categories as well. I think there's a lot of people would say they want to see that happen in gin as、mm-hmm. well. Gin's diversified so much, and there's so much confusion in the category now. And really, you know,、uh, most of most of my colleagues are looking to the more traditional styles, the ones that kind of established the category in the first place. I'd say the same thing about rum as well.、Um, lots of different flavored rums and and weird,、um, wonderful rums with interesting stories, but not a lot to back it up.、Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a hope there. I think that we just go back to basic, well produced. It's just about the the quality of the ingredients that's been used, and the、um, attention to detail in respect to the production quality,、uh, like process of the、yes. of the product.、Yeah. Once you get that, it's actually very difficult to mess it up. You know, you're going to have a good product. You don't. You're not trying to hide behind anything and say you're something you're not or. <laughs> You know that this is the you know emperor's new clothes. You're just making an honest, delicious product. Yes, and I'd love to see restaurants get on board with that and yeah,、uh, really up their game on on beer because once you get like a good beer served with a good meal, it, it regardless of who the brewery is, yeah, it's good for the entire industry because、yes. now it puts beer on that table. So if one really good restaurant does it, the rest will follow. Yeah, it's just about flavor,、yeah. and that you know that glass tells a story. Whether it's a vodka, gin, cocktail, beer, wine, that glass. Lots of people have influenced what's in in your glass, and as long as people look at whatever liquid they're drinking in that respect,、um, the better life will be. Right. Thank you so much, guys. Before I let you go out into the world and spread the wonderful word of beer、uh, even more,、um, I have a few、uh, quickfire questions for you. But you can elaborate on the answers as much as you like. Cool. Okay. Um, I've adapted the normal quickfire questions because you guys don't know anything at all about spirits and cocktails. You've never heard of them. <laughs> You've never tasted them,、um, and all, the only thing you basically know is beer. Yeah,、um, Shandy's a cocktail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, what is your desert island drink?、Uh, it's very cliched, but a pint of Guinness. Like, that is <laughs> that is what I will always default at. Like, I love trying new styles, love trying new beers, but I think the the one go to. Is just that that point.、Mm-hmm. Just the, the fact of being on a desert island. I'd have to wait two minutes for it to be settling and surging as well. I mean, yeah, build up the expectation for it. Ed, doesn't have to be a beer. Doesn't. It's going to be though. It's going to be offshore pilsner, New World pilsner. Okay. Special. Okay. Nice. Refreshing. Um, what's your 
and this this doesn't need necessarily need to be a specific product, but the one drink, probably a beer, that you would love to see banished from the world. I am not a huge fan of uh, double and triple IPAs that have a lot of chunks of yeast still floating around in them. Mm. Uh, maybe that's a personal flavor preference, but I, there's something about pouring them into the glass and seeing little chunky bits of yeast floating around that just, for whatever reason, it brings back a childhood memory of accidentally drinking sour milk. And mm-hmm. I just have that same reflex when I taste one of those beers. Like the, the, the aroma is amazing. And maybe if I drank it from the can, I'd be fine. But for whatever reason, it pours into the glass, I'm, I'm done. I remember there used to be the thing, this thing. I don't see so many of those beers around anymore, maybe because you're doing a good job and telling people to stop drinking them. But <laughs> I remember there used to be this thing where you get those beers which have sediment on the bottom. And what, what I was told to do, I can't remember where and I can't remember by whom, was you pour the beer out. And then when you get down to the last centimetre or inch, um, you swirl it round and then you pour that into a shot glass on the side. So you get this opaque, yeasty, sediment-rich shot that you can then, if you wish, a bit like nosing a cork from a bottle of wine, you can go to it and go, ah, yes, well, that was a wonderful culture uh, that was introduced to that particular beer. And I I will now enjoy the beer. Kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's fine because you know that's what you're supposed to do in advance. It's when it the, the trope comes in as a surprise is yeah. more the, yeah. the issue. Yeah, good one. I like that. Yeah, I like that as well. Um, don't get Aperol Spritz. Oh, okay. All right, he's going cross-category now. He's jumping into mixology territory. I just don't get it, mate. Okay. And, but it does hammer home the fact that you know, taste is completely subjective. Mm. I think you just see Aperol Spritz as like a viable alternative to a beer. It's that kind of like 5 p.m., Oh, should I have a Pilsner? Or maybe I'll go for an Aperol Split. Split? Split? <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Like an ice cream version yeah. of an Aperol, like a cross with a strawberry split. It'll be very bitter. Yes. Yeah. But then you've got vanilla ice cream sandwich in the middle of that, which yes, would true. really make it lovely. Colours of a Neapolitan. Mm. Um, okay, fair enough. That's, that's cool. Uh, next one. The place... Could be a pub, could be a bar where you would most like to enjoy a drink. And it could be any drink, but what is that one place in the entire world where you'd feel most comfortable and at home? I like pubs. I really, really love pubs. There's just something about the atmosphere that you just can't replicate at home. You're so cliche. I am. am. Yeah, but he's nodding and it's like he's got 100% conviction in his eyes. I love this. I I don't want to seat. I just want to like lean against the bar where I can kind of pivot and turn and see who's coming in the door and who else is in the place and have a good chat with the bar staff. Foxy, you know what? It's like the Guinness Toucan laid an egg. And you popped out of that egg. You are like the, the, the embodiment, the human personification of Guinness. Want to enjoy a pint of Guinness on a desert island and I want to be in a pub if I'm not there. It's absolutely That's perfect. Awesome. But I didn't say I was drinking Guinness in the pub. I just want to drink <laughs> in the pub. In the pub. In the pub. Brilliant. Where for me to go to Belgium with good people, five or six good friends, I think sunshining, that's that's my happy place. Um, okay, final question. Um, if you, you're in this bar, who are you going to be drinking with? Ed, you've already answered it, so that's fine. But what's your ideal accomplice for this uh, drinking experience? Well, after you asked the question earlier, I kind of want to open a bar with Ed now where we can just have like endless arguments about <laughs> what should be on tap. Well, never, I mean, I'd never argue. I'd try it and then try and justify the fact that it might not be there. But I, to be honest, mate, I'll probably agree with you with every suggestion you have. Brilliant. So Ed said six people. And on that note, I think it's a perfect time to draw this podcast to a close while we go and find four more 
more people. Sound. Thank you so much for coming in, guys. Uh, let's go out and spread the wonderful world of beer. Um, thank you and good night. Thank, thank you. you for having Cheers. us. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Bar Chat. Visit diageobaracademy.com for access to more podcast episodes and exclusive content. See you next time.